So we're here at the first Sunday of a new year and of a new decade. Think about that. 2020, excited about that. But you realize that God is the one who designed that we get a clean slate every 365 days. I mean, every year starts and we have 300, at this point, 360 days remaining, maybe 361. I think this might be a leap year. And uh, 361 days. And every one of them is clean, pristine. And we have the opportunity to make more of God and more of Jesus in our life this year than we did last year. And really, that's God's purpose for us. God has a purpose for our life, and the goal of the Christian life is allowing God to accomplish that purpose in us. And so you come to a new year, and we can reflect on where we are at. Uh, we can consider where God wants to take us over the next 12 months. And we can make adjustments along the way as they ought to be made. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen during preaching. We come to church, we hear the word of God, and we're reminded of things. Maybe we, we see some things we've not seen before, and we realize, I need to adjust my life to come into conformity with God's word. And so every Sunday we have a chance to do that. And this Sunday, I believe that God wants to help us with a principle that if we will apply it today and just apply it all year long, this can make it be the best year for each and every one of us in terms of God's ability to use our, our lives, our ability to bring glory to the Lord. So I'm excited about preaching this morning from Luke chapter number two. Uh, there's a lesson here that God wants us to learn about faith. Faith that helps us make Jesus known to others. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to use our lives to make Jesus known to others, to this world and we're going to learn this lesson today from the only event recorded in the Bible from the childhood of Jesus. One event from the childhood of Jesus, but it has a very important and I think a very appropriate truth for us to consider this morning. So Luke chapter number two, I'm going to begin reading in verse 41 and we'll read to the end of the chapter and then um, get into the message this morning. As you're able this morning, let's stand together out of reverence for the word of God that he's given to us. I believe we have holy Bibles, amen? Verse number 41. Now his parents, speaking of Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, how many of you think if you're a parent, you've been looking for your kid for three days? Yeah, we, 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 we can feel that, can't we? So after three days, it says, i got to find it here in our Bible. Verse 46, it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, Mary and Joseph, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, son. Now that's exactly the way I would have said it. Son. Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, 
How is it that you sought me? Wished you not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I want us to think about this this morning. God wants us to have a visible faith. And the question we need to ask by the time we get done is, as people observe my life, do they see something that convinces them that God is real? I mean, by the faith they see that I have, would they be convinced that God is real? Is my faith detectable? How many parents do we have here this morning? Raise your hand. Proud parents, raise your hand. Yeah, okay. Nothing wrong being a proud parent, by the way. Amen? And uh, God gives us children, and they uh, oftentimes give us many, many reasons to rejoice uh, in them. But every parent here this morning has stories to tell about the childhood of your children, don't you? Uh, you could tell about the first word that they spoke. Now, my wife says I'm mistaken, but I'm almost positive all three of my sons said daddy first. The first word, the first tooth, the first haircut if they were a boy, the first trip to, to get an ice cream cone with grandpa, your grandkids, and uh, just grandpa. I mean, we all have stories to tell about the childhood of our children. We watch them grow up, and we observe them through the stages of childhood, then adolescence, and then adulthood. And it usually doesn't take much prompting to get us to tell stories about our kids and what happened to them, does it? Everybody understand what I'm saying? I mean, we like to talk about our kids. Uh, we like to talk about uh, uh, the first big game. My kids were all about sports, so the first big game they played in. Uh, the first time they actually contributed to a big game. I'm not sure that ever happened. Uh, the first car that they purchased, uh, the first job that they have, the day they received Jesus as their Savior, the day they, they uh, gave their lives to the Lord and, and dedicated their lives to Him. I mean, there are, there are just so many things that we look back on that we remember with great joy from the childhood of our children. Is that not true? Even the most ordinary life is full of memorable events. So how much more the childhood of Jesus, the Son of God? You know, I have to think that as Luke sat down with Mary and learned from him the things of the, you know, the appearance of the angel and then the birth in Bethlehem, the angels, what happened at the temple, all the things that we've been reading, I have to believe that Mary had some stories to tell about having the Son of God, Jesus Christ, grow up in her home. The wonder of watching him grow up. And yet, of all the things that she might have had to tell him over that portion of his life, Luke only chose to record one, this one. Out of the first 30 years of his life, I mean, not, not including his birth, okay, but from the time they went back home to Nazareth, that first 30 years, Luke chose to tell us one account from the childhood of Jesus, the adolescence, the adulthood of Jesus, just one, and this is it. John includes none, Matthew has none, Mark has none, this is the one and only account that we have of the childhood of Jesus. And it does have something important to teach us this morning about Jesus. 
and it has something of important to teach us about us. Now, one of the things that Luke wants us to see about Jesus is that the human development of Jesus as a child was entirely normal. And, and we touched on this last Sunday in the message, but I want to develop it a little bit more. If you back up into verse number 40, verse number 40, it says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's a, a description of those entire first 12 years. But it says that the child grew. And so the physical development of Jesus occurred normally. Uh, in other words, Jesus matured in the usual way. As a human baby, Jesus grew up like our babies did. And so there was a day when the human child of Jesus had grown enough that he could learn to sit up and then to crawl and then to toddle along and finally to walk. I mean, that was part of the development of Jesus. Uh, he explored the world through the members of his body. Think about this, a body that he designed and created. Uh, he, he began to experience the wonder of creation through eyes that he himself had designed. Uh, can you imagine him one day just as a little baby reaching up and grabbing hold of a lock of Mary's hair? looking into his mother's face, seeing it as any child would see. It's what it means when it says the child grew. He discovered the ability to use his mouth to make sounds, and just like any other baby, experimenting with them till he could form words. Jesus didn't come out of the womb, walking, talking, reciting scripture. He grew. He developed normally. He reached the point where he could toddle around behind Joseph, follow him into the carpenter shop. And I can imagine him, just like any little boy, just pestering his daddy with questions. Daddy why? Daddy what? Daddy how? He developed normally. Well, why? Because he came to be one of us and experienced the life that we experience in this world. Now, the Bible says that as a child, Jesus was raised by his parents. Verse 41 says, now his parents went to Jerusalem. And it tells us the influence that his parents had on his life. So he's raised by his parents. By the way, don't be confused by that word. We know, as Jesus knew, and Mary and Joseph knew, that his true father was his heavenly father, God the Father. But the Bible is the one who calls them his parents. Why? Because that's the role that he filled in, uh, they filled in his life. They were his parents. Now, I'm pretty sure they weren't perfect parents. You know Why? Because none of those exist. My parents weren't perfect. I wasn't a perfect parent to any of my children. You weren't to yours, and yours weren't to you. Mary and Joseph weren't. And, and you kind of get a hint of that when you can see an exasperated Mary finding him in the temple. Son, what on earth were you thinking? You know, not understanding who he was and why he was there and what was going on. They, he was raised by his parents. Now, one thing that we do know from the descriptions the Bible gives to us, is they were godly parents, not perfect parents, but they were parents to whom the things of God were supreme in their life. They were dedicated to bringing up Jesus in what the Bible describes as the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so for 12 years as he grew, every year it came time for the Passover, they packed up their family and they got on the road and they went to Jerusalem and they observed the Passover just like God said it was to be done in the scriptures. Uh, they, they modeled to their son Jesus a life of faith 
and obedience to God's word. It was God's word that said every year we go to the Passover. And this is how long we stay. And this is what we do while we're there. And the Bible lets us know they modeled before him a testimony of faith and obedience to the things of God. They didn't take any shortcuts. Uh, if you look at verse 43, it says, and when they had fulfilled the days, fulfilled the days, they had done everything that was meant to be done over the course of the full eight days that all belong to the Passover. So this wasn't a family that would drag in a couple of days late. You know, God will understand. <laughs> he, he had a son. He'll understand. We got one of those too. And so, no, it wasn't. they didn't drag in a couple of days late. They made sure they were always there on time. They always did what they were meant to do. Um, they didn't bust out of there as soon as the last blessing of the priest was announced. Um, these individuals were committed to showing to their young boy, Jesus, the value of the things of God. They gave him an example. They showed him that God's plan and God's agenda for their lives came first. All you have to do is read the book and you see that's the kind of parents that they were. It's no wonder then that Luke says in verse 40 that he waxed strong in spirit. He just didn't grow and develop physically, but he grew and developed spiritually because his parents impressed upon him the value of spiritual things. He makes sure that we understand the, the, the parenting of Jesus uh, 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 contributed to that spiritual development in his life. Now, let me just pause and talk to parents for just a minute. Because the Bible tells us that children are like arrows. They come to us without direction. They depend upon us for guidance. And that's what it means. It describes them like an arrow. You can, you can shoot an arrow at any mark you want and likely hit it. So children come, and you can send children out into this world all different directions. But God is counting on you, and God is counting on me to make sure that we aim those children at the right target, that we put some guidance to our parenting so that we stress what counts most in life. We want to launch our children in the right direction. We want to aim them toward God and God's purpose for their life. The whole point of Christian parenting is raise children who will be able to know, understand, and fulfill God's will for their lives. You know, it's very tragic when you see parents, and boy, they're very intense on making sure their children are equipped to make a living, and they're equipped to take an, and a uh, you know, all the different things that children do, but fail to impress upon them the importance of God and the things of God to their lives. The role of a parent in the life of a child is paramount. Nobody has greater influence in the lives of your children than you do as their mom, their dad. And they learn most by your example. And we all know that, don't we? That the whole do as I say, not as I do thing doesn't work. We influence them best through our example. Now, if we've got any UCLA fans here, you'll remember Coach John Wooden. Ten championship seasons out of 12 coaching the UCLA Bruins. He was given a poem in 1936 when his first son was born. The poem was inscribed beneath the picture of a, of a, a, a father and his son walking along a beach, the dad out in front, 
And the little boy was trying to make sure that he got into the footprints that he was left by his dad. And the first standard of that poem went like this. It says, a careful man I must always be. A little fellow follows me. I know I dare not go astray for fear he'll go the self same way. John Wooden lived to be 100 years old and he carried that poem in his wallet for the rest of his life as a reminder that his influence in the life of his children and then his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, the students that he coached in basketball, that his influence, his example never ended. Joseph and Mary, I think they did it for all the right reasons. Passover's coming. We've got to start getting stuff together and make sure we get away on time and get there on time. We don't want to miss any of it. And then you get there, and what time is it? Oh, we've got to... Come on, get things together. we got to get to the temple and we need to be prepared for, for this part of it and that part of it. They fulfilled it all every year for 12 years. Do not make the mistake of thinking that made no influence on Jesus. He was son of God. He would have fulfilled his mission. But God emphasized here for us the parenting of Jesus. For 12 years, they set an example for him and God wants us to know that. The human development of Jesus was entirely normal. Can I just issue this challenge before we go on? Parents, you have 361 more days to influence your children, to put them in that bow and launch them in the direction you want to go. Right now, you're really probably not launching them. You don't launch them until they're like 14, 15, 16 years old. They go out in the workforce. They kind of start getting those independence. But you're aiming it right now. Where do you want them to be 10 years, 12, 15, 20 years from now? Parent your children for the future you want them to have and make sure the future you want them to have is the future that God wants them to have. The human development of Jesus, entirely normal. The divine development of Jesus caught Joseph and Mary off guard. The divine development, I hesitate to use that development but you begin to see Jesus making him others aware that he knew who he was and why he was here. And so the divine development of Jesus caught Joseph and Mary off guard. We read here that the Passover ended. Uh, Mary and Joseph began the trip home in the company of others from Galilee. Uh, at the end of the day, they discovered that Jesus was missing. Missing child. The authors describe the disappearance of Jesus in various ways. A lot of them lean in one direction. Let me kind of give you an idea of what they think. Here's what one author says about Jesus missing from his parents. He says, absorbed in the preparation for departure, Jesus did not realize his parents had left. Another says, Jesus was so caught up in the excitement of Passover in the temple that he couldn't resist staying behind like a little boy who wants to join the circus. Get the idea. They paint a picture of a thoughtless little boy who deserved the scolding that he got from his parents when they finally caught up with him in the temple. I do not believe that's the picture the text paints at all of Jesus. First of all, the first indication is that the decision to remain behind on his part was deliberate. Uh, the word the Bible uses in, in, in verse number um, 
mm, I'm looking for 43. It says the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. If you were to read that in the Greek, it's pretty uh, emphatic. Okay, he did it on purpose. Okay, he he tarried. He remained behind on purpose. So here's what we have to understand. He knew his parents were leaving. I mean, they'd done this for 12 years, right? Passover's over. What do we do? We pack things up and we get on the road. He knew his parents were leaving. He knew where they were leaving from. He knew what time they were leaving. And he deliberately chose to not go with them. So this choice was deliberate on his part. But it wasn't sinful. Now, if my boy did that, you know what I'm talking about? Him and I are going to have a talk, and it might not all be with this. <laughs> so why wasn't it sinful for Jesus? Well, I know this, number one, because the Bible teaches us that Jesus was without sin. That's the word the Bible uses. He was without sin. He lived his entire life, boyhood, adolescence, manhood, all of it, without sinning. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says he knew no sin. He wasn't acquainted with it at all. He'd never done it. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He never yielded to the temptation to sin. Jesus never disobeyed his parents. Okay, If we just want to take it a little farther, he never shacked up with Mary Magdalene like some of the modern authors would like you to believe. Uh, he, he wasn't a homosexual or any other kind of, of anything other than he was meant to be, you know, just closing and hiding it from people. Jesus was the son of God. He lived his entire life as a sinless man. He was without sin. So the choice that Jesus made was deliberate, but it was not an act of defiance to his parents, and it wasn't an act of disobedience towards Mary and Joseph. So the decision was deliberate, but it wasn't sinful. And nevertheless, the decision and their discovery of it was very distressing to Mary and Joseph. Everybody agree with that? Very distressing to them. They could not believe where Jesus was when they finally found him. Again, if you look at your Bible, it says in verse 46, it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him, okay, describing what's been going on for three days now, all that heard him were astonished at his answers and at his understanding and answers. Note that word astonished, verse 48. And when they saw him, his parents, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? So they couldn't believe that he was there doing that. The word astonished that Luke uses in verse 47, it emphasizes something mental that goes on. Okay? We would say he was, they were mind blown. Okay? As he lectured the PhDs of his day in the things of God, they were blown away by his understanding. That's what the word astonished means. I mean, they were just totally astonished at his understanding. The word amazed in verse 47 means to be stupefied. It's, you see it and you can't believe your eyes. So you understand what they're saying when it says that they were amazed. They saw him and they were like, what? What is he doing here? What does that boy think he's doing? Okay, they were amazed. 
They couldn't believe where Jesus was and what he was doing. They were also confused by his actions. You get that from the question. Why hast thou dealt with us? We do not understand what you're doing here. So they were confused by his actions. To them, or at least to Mary, what he did was inconsiderate. I'm positive it was like nothing that Jesus had ever done before. Confused. Thirdly, they were distraught over his disappearance. It says they had sought for him sorrowing. I can imagine as every, one day turned to two and two turned to three, just the anxiety, the grief. Do you think, he, do you think Mary even slept that night between the second and third day? Totally distraught by what was happening. Now, Luke is very clear. Jesus remained in Jerusalem without his parents' permission. He didn't tell them in advance what he was going to do. He just did it. His choice was clearly confusing and distressing to Mary and Joseph. When he was questioned by Mary, I don't know if you caught this or not, he didn't apologize. He didn't say, oh, so mom, oh, mom, I didn't even think. He didn't apologize. He didn't even sympathize. His answer suggests they should have known what he was up to. He questions their reaction to his disappearance. Verse 49, how is it that you sought me? Wished you not that I must be about my father's business? Look up here. Isn't it evident to you that from those words, Jesus is expected a different response from Mary and Joseph than the one he got? How is it? I don't understand. I have to be doing the thing that my father sent me here to do. Jesus expected a response that reflected their understanding of who he was and why he came into this world. And this brings us to the third truth, and this is the one that gets to us. Because Mary and Joseph knew the truth about Jesus. But no one would have guessed that from their response. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you'd watch Mary and Joseph and that frantic search and the nights of tears and all that you saw, listen very carefully to what came out of her mouth at that moment, you would never guess that Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus was the Son of God, how he had come into this world, and what he was there for. They knew he was the Son of God. They knew that God was his father. Gabriel had told Mary as much when he said that this child would be called the son of God. The shepherds said it much when they reported that the angel said, he's Christ the Lord. He is the son of God. Mary and Joseph knew who Jesus was. They knew that he had been born to do his father's business. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was the promised one. They knew he was the one who would one day sit on the throne of his father David and deliver their nation. Why? Because they had been told these things prior to and in the course of his birth. From their encounter with Anna and Simeon, 
They had been reminded of his divine purpose in coming to this earth. Anna was telling everybody, you've been looking for the Redeemer. He's here. Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he could say, he's here. I hold him in my arms. Mary and Joseph knew who Jesus was and why Jesus came. But in the crisis of the moment, they forgot it all. And they acted like any other person. See, I read this, and this is very convicting to me. There was nothing in their response that demonstrated their faith in what God had said, what God had revealed to them about their son. I mean, let's just walk ourselves through it. They've been searching frantically, and then suddenly they arrive at the temple and they see him. And they see him uh, uh, surrounded by a crowd of people, many of the doctors, the, the people who are experts in the law, what we call men with their PhDs hanging on a wall someplace. I mean, here were these individuals, and they're surrounding him. And you could see these men just shaking their head and listening to Jesus and like, wow. Instead of being amazed at finding him in the temple, it should have been one of those moments. Oh, we should have guessed. This is one of those God things, you know, like the shepherds showing up and the whole, whole everything. <laughs> what were we thinking? Not what was he thinking, because that's what came out of our mouth. What were you thinking? Is What were we thinking? You ever had one of those moments in your life? In the crisis of the moment, you forgot everything you ever knew about the Bible, God, what it said, all his promises, and you acted like any other person. And something has to happen and go, what was I thinking? Why did I let my emotions get away with me? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Instead of being amazed, they should have understood this is God. Instead of stressing out for three days, wondering what had happened, they should have known that whatever was happening, God was in control. I mean, hadn't God been in control of everything so far? Hadn't God been in control when Mary conceived a child as a virgin, knowing that it would subject her to ridicule and shame? Because in everybody's eyes, she would be an unwed mother, that she had done something wrong when Mary knew nothing had been done wrong. Wasn't God in control then? Wasn't God in control when Caesar's decree sent them scrambling to get to Bethlehem to have Jesus because that's where he was supposed to be born? Wasn't God in control? See, instead of stressing out, they should have been able to rest. Okay, we don't know where he's at. We don't know what's happened to him, but we know this. God is in control. He's been in control every day since he first told us that he was giving us his son to raise and prepare for the work that he's been called to do. They should have understood. And then once they saw Jesus in action, engaged in the Father's business, that should have ended their confusion. It should have brought instant peace. And yet you have Mary and Joseph acting as if Jesus were just any other child, and they most certainly knew he was not. Everybody okay with that? Acting just like this is an ordinary kid instead of this is the son of God. And what Jesus pointed out and what Luke wants us to understand is that in spite of, what the, in spite of the truth they knew, there was no visible faith in their response. In spite 
of the truth they knew about Jesus, who he was, where he came from, what he was there for, in spite of their knowledge of the truth, there was no visible faith in their response. How many times over the course of this past year could the same thing be said of us? In the crisis of the moment, we forgot everything that God has said, everything we know is true. We forget that God's in control. We can't sleep and we pace the floor and we complain to people. And I mean, you know, don't you understand? My whole life's out of control right now. Excuse me, I thought you were a Christian. I thought God was in control of your life. We forgot that we can trust him with the details of our lives. We forget that we can trust him with our children. We can trust him with our needs. We can trust him with our futures. You and I, we're not meant to question God's decisions. There's no need to question God's decision because God always does that which is right and good and best in the lives of his children for his plan and purposes. See, the truths that you and I hold in our heads must be allowed to control our hearts. We're not meant to give in to feelings of anxiety, anger, fear, hopelessness, despair. I mean, sometimes, isn't it just true, just gauging by the emotions that we express, people would not be convinced that God is real. They would expect peace, but we're as stressed out as they are. They would expect just some quiet, calm, confidence. Yep, we're in the middle of a storm, but don't worry. We know who's captaining this boat while we're in this storm. They don't see that, but they ought to. See, our faith is meant to be detectable. I think that's part of the truth here. Here's Mary and Joseph. They'd had Jesus in their life for 12 years. This was not a new thing. It wasn't not like they had not had time to, to digest and understand who he was. And so, no, I can understand why they would get confused in the moment and everything just get away. I understand that. That's human. But once they realized the truth, once they saw him doing what he was meant to do and where he was, it should have been, oh, how could I be like that? How could I act so ordinary when my life is in the hands of an extraordinary God? Jim Elliott, the 20th century missionary martyr, penned these words in his journal, his prayer. He said, forgive me, Lord, for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. To listen to some Christians, you'd believe that we live on the same economy as this world. That we were dependent upon what happened at, on Wall Street and here and there and everywhere. Instead of a God who's promised to care for his children. Who cares for the lilies of the field. Takes care of the sparrows in the sky. But we act as if our financial security rests in whatever is happening out there. We act as if there's no higher power at work in our lives than our own. It all depends upon me. If I don't get this right, it's, it's over. Nothing in our actions would say, I gave my life to an almighty, omniscient, perfect, holy, righteous, supreme being. He can handle it. 
The crisis of faith that comes into our lives, I need to repeat that, the crises. How many of you have more than one crisis in your life? I'm not talking about right now, but we've been around long enough, more than one, amen? The crises of faith that come into our lives are meant to be crossroads of faith for others. It's meant to bring them to a fork in the road where they must make a decision about whether or not God is real and our testimony of faith in those moments is meant to remove the doubt. They may not be convinced, but they have to make a choice. When we behave as if our lives were no better off than the lives of any other person, we deny God the ability to convince others he's real. He can take care of me, and everything looks impossible. I can live life his way and be better for it, even though it often makes no sense to me. I, I can trust him with the most difficult and challenging things. Things that, yes, they confuse. I don't understand why God has allowed this in my life. I don't know what God, I don't even know where God's taking me at the moment, but I do know this. I can trust him in every part of the journey. The crises of faith that come into our lives are meant to be crossroads of faith for others. And you must remember, faith is not defined by what we believe about God. It's not defined by what we say about God. It's not defined by a bumper sticker we put on the back of our car. In fact, that bumper sticker might not convince the person driving that car is a Christian unless they see something in our driving when it counts that might convince them otherwise. Faith is not defined by what we believe about God, but what we do because we believe in God. Faith is confidence in God that rests in confidence in what God says. The world doesn't need to hear we believe. The world needs to see we believe. We believe in the Father that sent his son Jesus so he could be our father too. We believe in Jesus, the son of God who sacrificed his self for our sins so we could be forgiven. We believe in the spirit who dwells in our hearts and imparts to us the daily grace we need to live in the difficulties of this world. We believe in the Bible, every chapter, every verse, every line, every word. The songwriter put it, Though the earth be removed and time be no more, these truths are secure. God's word shall endure. Whatever may change, these things are sure. And because they are, I'm going to live like there's a God in heaven, a God is real, a God that I can look in the face of the worst circumstance and say, our God is able, but if not... I will go to the grave believing he's doing what's right. Our faith in Christ must come through the words we speak. People have to be able to see it in the decisions that we make, in the motions we display, the actions that we take. Our faith has to be visible and real in us so that others might see that God is real through us. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you have faith in God? 
Now, the first and most important faith is saving faith. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's coming to that point of desperation where you realize, I, I can't save myself. I've blown it too much. Nothing I do in the future can undo anything I've done. I need mercy. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who came into this world, died on the cross, was buried and rose again, that he'd be your savior. The first faith that God wants us to exercise is faith in Jesus Christ to save us. Now, you can tell pretty quick if you're trusting Jesus to save you by how you answer this question. Are you 100% sure that heaven is your home or do you have some doubts about it? And if I said, well, you say, I have some doubt. Well, why do you have doubts? Well, because I don't. Well, I know there's times that. What you're telling me is you're depending upon you to save you and what you do to save you instead of Jesus. The minute you come to the realization that, no, all my faith and hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone, you realize, okay, I may not be everything I want to be, but I know where I'm headed when I die. Jesus. The first faith that God wants us to have is faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. What better way to start the new year than if I just own up, I'm a sinner, I need saving, Jesus is the Savior, and take him as your Savior this morning. But then we're going to live out our lives, lives of faith over the next 361 days, and that faith needs to be detectable. People are meant to detect it by what they see when the crisis hits in our life. What they hear when we're in those pressure cooker moments. The emotions that come out of our hearts. The things that we do. All of it together is to say this. I know God. He is real. He is worthy of my trust and yours. Will your faith be detectable in 2020? Will others be able to take and discern that God is real because they know you know he's real. Let's stand this morning, please. Every head bowed and every eye closed.